the power of the fossil record and that it's not just us going out and collecting things and putting them in museum drawers. That these museum collections, that paleontological collections, have so much undiscovered potential. My name is Christina Barkley and I am a Bantini postdoctoral fellow at the University of Victoria and I'm a paleoecologist. Welcome to episode 14 of Below the Tide. My name is Liz and I am your host. Today is a continuation from episode 13. So I am sitting down with Christina Barkley and we are chatting further about her research and learning more about crabs and crab predation and the fishing industry that surrounds crabs. She has so many cool things to say and to talk about. I think you're really gonna enjoy this one. As with all my episodes, the resources are on my Instagram page at Below the Tide Podcast, as well as like some pictures and all that to help you follow along if that's what you're into. So buckle up. And I don't know if you know very much about crab fisheries. I don't. But a fishery, would that be considered like a farm where they're raising crabs? Or is it kind of a fishing boat that goes out and brings up crabs via um, nets? Yeah, so it's the latter, yeah. Okay. So it's basically... So um, what you see on TV. Yeah, it's the crab basically. fishermen. Of, yeah, yeah, so it's people going out on boats. Yeah. Um, and there's different methods, uh, but usually they're called pots, mm-hmm. and they're these big circular traps. And most of, most of the commercial fisheries with the mm-hmm. big crabbing mm-hmm. boats are going to be, in our area, are going to be Dungeness crabs. Right. And that's... Uh, the, yeah, the biggest fishery, and it's a really valuable fishery in mm-hmm. BC. Um, and then there's a smaller recreational fishery for mm-hmm. both Dungeness as well as rock crabs. Mm-hmm. Rock crabs aren't so much commercially exploited. Um, but the other big thing is that for many of the indigenous groups and many of the First Nations in BC, crabs are a really important mm-hmm. uh, source of protein, rivaling salmon. Um, and they have constitutionally protected rights to fish for what we call food as social and ceremonial purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if there are declines in crab populations and they actually, that can potentially impact their ability to fish for these crabs. Mm -hmm. um, And it's supposed to be a protected right. So uh, there's been a lot of great work done on the central coast in BC here to basically study how commercial uh, fishing impacts crab populations. And they found through using and doing, conducting interviews with uh, local indigenous people, they found since, yeah, basically about the 90s that there's been uh, huge declines in crab catches. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's associated directly with commercial crab fishing. but the other part of that study that I thought was really interesting, a complementary study that was done, uh, was that when these indigenous groups enact uh, indigenous law and they mm-hmm. kick out the commercial fisheries for a time, the crabs bounce back really quickly. Oh, really? So that's potentially some positive news. So basically, the, what I'm hoping is if we can find evidence that crab populations are declining or wherever they might be declining, that all we have to do is close the fisheries temporarily, once in a while, 
and then allow the populations mm -hmm. to recover and that will be a pretty hopefully a fairly simple solution for keeping these fisheries sustainable yeah but it is a major concern for a lot of indigenous groups here mm -hmm. is their ability to um, collect and uh, trap crabs yeah oh no kidding um, do you know kind of what the turnover of crabs is do you know kind of like um, in terms of reproduction, how many offspring they'll have, typically? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, typically, uh, they, what hap in terms of their, like, reproductive lifestyle, mm -hmm. um, or life cycle, I suppose, in, around this time of year, so in the spring, the females molt. They typically molt once a year. And molting is? It, when they shed their exoskeleton. Mm -hmm. So that's the only way the crabs can grow, is that they temporarily shed their exoskeleton. Um, and then they crawl, they kind of crawl out of their, their skeleton, and then they puff themselves up with water. And then that cuticle that uh, is soft, mm -hmm. and then eventually it will harden. Does it take very long for it to harden? Um, feels like they're probably like bare. Yeah, they're yeah. So they are pretty vulnerable. Oh, okay, that's yeah. if you've heard of soft shell crab, that's usually right after that molt oh, okay. stage. So it's like on the order of a day or two. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but basically, when the females molt, mm -hmm. the male crabs kind of grab them in what's called a mating embrace, <laughs> uh, and so the male crabs are quite a bit bigger than the females. Mm -hmm. um, and they kind of just hold on to them, and the female will have hundreds of thousands of eggs. Um, how successful they are sometimes depends. So that that's also yeah. can be dependent on many different things. But yeah, so any like a female can have yeah hundreds of thousands of eggs uh, that might turn into uh, basically once the eggs and sperm combine, then you end up with these little crab larvae, um, zoea they're called. They're very mm -hmm. cute. Um, that live in the water uh, column for a time um, and then they go through a few different molt stages mm. as they get bigger and bigger um, and then they eventually will metamorphose into adult tiny crabs and um, yeah so I it's hard to say there's a lot of things that impact mm -hmm. crab recruitment um, one of the other big concerns too is how climate change impacts these early life stages of crabs mm -hmm. too so things like ocean acidification um, hypoxia, which is basically lower oxygen conditions. Um, those are all things that can have huge impacts on those really early vulnerable life stages of these little crab larvae yeah. that live in the water column. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So then I guess the successful ones, then they live to be how old before, you know, they're typically at a full grown age. Um, so males are typically reproductive within a year or two, okay. um, depends a little bit on the species, but yeah, mm -hmm. usually within a year or two, they've, uh, when they're really little, they go, they molt quite fast, so mm -hmm. they molt quite a bit because they're growing a lot, so they'll molt several times a year, but once they get to adult stage, um, or reproductive stage, they start to molt only maybe once or twice a year, and okay. when they get to be big adult crabs, they only molt usually once a year or once every other year. Okay. Um, and in terms of their age, I think they can live, you know, fairly long. It, it depends, too, on fishing pressures, mm -hmm. so there are some reports that are saying, you know, basically all the adult crabs that are of legal size to fish will get fished in mm -hmm. certain areas, so those might not be very old, but I think, you know, if they were left to their own devices, they could live several years longer. Right. 
Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Does kind of like First Nations communities and that kind of knowledge play into your research quite often or is this kind of the first time? Uh, so yeah, the archaeological and indigenous uh, knowledge, I'll admit, is new, mm-hmm. uh, a new component that we're trying to add. Um, but I think it's really important to learn more and acknowledge the, the history that um, indigenous people before contact, so uh, before uh, basically uh, the area was colonized mm-hmm. and before a settlement as right. well. Um, understanding that sort of earlier history is a really important part that often gets ignored in these studies um, because you know humans not just industrialized like the industrial age humans but earlier uh, humans also did have huge impacts on their environment Mm -hmm. both positive um, often very positive Mm -hmm. uh, but you know some kind of human impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a component that we're trying to understand a little bit more is how um, pre-contact, what these communities were, how they were interacting with species like clams and crabs. Oh, cool. And how do you go about kind of looking at that and finding that kind of information? Uh, yeah, so the archaeological um, Material's a little bit different, so uh, I know out in Barkley Sound, um, they often have these things called shell middens, and basically what it is is it's a human place deposit of mm-hmm. a whole bunch of shell material from communities coming in, eating the shells, or eating the, sna- <laughs> the clams, mm-hmm. uh, and then depositing the shell material yeah. in one location, and that gets preserved over time, um, and so you get a lot higher, like, resolution in terms of age Mm. um but yeah so the idea with that is to basically do the same thing and then look at that snapshot archaeologically and understand um maybe how crabs and humans were interacting (laughs) and as well as how humans were interacting with things like clams if species that they're harvesting as well so um yeah there's two kind of potential things we can learn yeah a little bit more about the crabs but also hopefully we'll learn more about the clams and how humans were uh, harvesting all of those food sources. Yeah, totally. And then if we jump back to kind of like fishing as a human impact, do you, through your research, kind of see any sort of major solutions that you would say or that you would propose? Um, I th- yeah, I think Can that... Can you fix the fishing industry? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I yeah, that's DFO's <laughs> problem to solve. <laughs> um, but one thing I think I would say is one thing I hope anyways is that I hope this gets people thinking about crabs mm-hmm. because they've become such an increasingly popular and economically important fishery. What is that added pressure doing to their populations mm-hmm. on top of the other stresses that they're dealing with, like things like climate change yeah. um, and whatnot. So I guess, I don't know that this will solve anything, but what I'm hoping is by bringing this to people's attention mm-hmm. that maybe it will get uh, people who are in positions of decision-making abilities to maybe increase the management of these fisheries. So maybe enacting more spatial closures of the fisheries on a more regular basis, 
just doing what we can to try and help sustain these fisheries. So right. I think, yeah, I don't know that I can fix anything, <laughs> but I'm hoping to bring some awareness. And I think other people have, you know, shown potential solutions like these spatial closures that uh, allow these fisheries some time to recover. So right. uh, I think that's one of the advantages of mm -hmm. uh, things like invertebrate animals that have these shorter lifespans that they can bounce back a mm -hmm. little bit more quickly. Um, but yeah, uh, definitely <laughs> I'm hoping mostly to bring some more awareness of the importance of crab fisheries to yeah. people of BC. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think about sometimes like, you know, you're at a restaurant, especially like here we, you know, you go to a restaurant and seafood is on the menu and crab is always one of those really expensive mm -hmm. um, meals. And yeah, to just like kind of, I feel like oftentimes we're disconnected from the idea of like they're out in the ocean and being fished mm -hmm. and such. Um, we spoke about earlier about how, you know, when indigenous peoples would go and kind of do their fishing, it gave a lot of the fisheries a chance to bounce back. Mm -hmm. Is there a specific reason for that? Is there a different way of fishing for crab? Is it, um, you know, numbers or what do you think? Uh, yeah, I think it was numbers. So by basically closing those certain areas to commercial fishing and not letting those big boats come in that mm -hmm. have the big pots, um, that took some pressure off of these crab populations and allowed them to come back okay. because the amount, it's basically a quantity thing, right. the amount of thing that, um, you know, an individual person can take versus a commercial fishing boat is mm -hmm. quite a bit different. So I think it's mostly just having that spatial closure, saying no fishing here for the time being, mm -hmm. that's allowed that a little bit of recovery in those populations. So mm -hmm. I think that was sort of one of the big take homes of that research. Cool. And when they close, if they do these spatial closures, is there someone kind of like monitoring that or policing that? Yeah, so that's a great question, and I don't know exactly who is involved, but mm -hmm. I know it would probably be a lot of, uh, like, the Guardian program oh, okay. um, that would be doing that, as well as local communities themselves. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it would be through signage and just telling people oh, okay, um, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely certain mm -hmm. all of the details of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can probably point you in the right direction if you need yeah. some more res resources on that. Yeah. What is something that you wish more people knew about? That's a great question. Um, I think I wish more people knew about just the power of the fossil record mm -hmm. and that it's not just us going out and collecting things and putting them in museum drawers. <laughs> that these museum collections, that paleontological collections, have so much undiscovered potential mm -hmm. and applications for things like modern conservation issues. So I think that, yeah, I'd love more people to know about what conservation paleobiology is mm -hmm. and that using these long-term records is, yeah, we can apply a lot of different really cool techniques mm -hmm. um, and answer questions that have you know, really important impacts to what's happening in the world today, especially if we're talking about things like climate change, mm -hmm. that the fossil record, the rock record, are hugely invaluable tools to help us learn a little bit more about the past, 
what's happened in the past mm -hmm. and where we might be going. So if we can see patterns in the past, can we apply that to today? So I think, yeah. <laughs> no, that's a really good one because I feel like a lot of people, they think paleontology and they'll automatically think like dinosaurs, mm -hmm. you know? and Ross Geller from Friends <laughs> and like that is their perspective of paleontology mm -hmm. but there's like an entire uh, like world of mm -hmm. paleontology that's not just dinosaurs and it's things like this which yeah. is super interesting yeah um, I mean we c I, in paleontology at least it, those of us that don't study dinosaurs <laughs> maybe we joke that dinosaurs are like the gateway fossil <laughs> or the gateway science even to it, paleontology is like yeah. dinosaurs are a way of getting kids hooked on science I mean I thought I was going to study dinosaurs too and then I just discovered there were so many other cool mm -hmm. things out there thanks so much for tuning in today again my name is Liz and you are listening to below the tide every Thursday I put an episode out so next Thursday I will have another episode with Christina and we'll be talking more about her area in marine science we chat with marine scientists every thursday and kind of get their story we get to learn about their research in a digestible way for people who aren't necessarily experts in a very niche part of marine science so i hope that you'll be here next thursday check out my instagram page at below the tide podcast to get a lot more information and updates about each episode and each person that is on the show have a good one